Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The Environmental Summit COP26 may be in the rearview mirror, but objects may be closer than they appear. Regardless of Canada's commitments on the world stage, selling climate change action at home will take work. But Canada's biggest bank has spent the last year investigating how best to shift to a net zero policy by 2050 or sooner. It calls this the $2 trillion transition. It believes areas like transportation, buildings, agriculture, and the oil and gas industry are all poised for growth through tech innovations and strategic opportunity. RBC reports Canada pumps as much greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere today as we did a generation ago. About 730 million tons of CO2 and other GHG, making us the world's 10th largest emitter. John Stackhouse, Senior Vice President at RBC, and Cynthia Leach, Senior Director of Thought Leadership at the bank, offered their insight. And I began by asking about the hardest part of putting together a report that is just this comprehensive. Whew. <laughs> uh, none, of, none of this is easy, hmm. but certainly trying to develop projections uh, and interdependent ones that are looking 25, 30 years out is uh, going to require various data sets, uh, various uh, bases of knowledge and uh, a range of assumptions. Um, so all of that you know, makes, makes it fascinating, uh, Im- Im- important, of course, but, uh, but full of challenges. Cynthia, if you estimate that we need to spend at least $60 billion a year to cut emissions by 75% from today's levels, where's the additional $45 billion above what we are already spending going to come from? Well, it's going to have to be a joint effort. A lot of that's going to come from the private sector, meaning private businesses, meaning households, um, meaning you know investment vehicles like pension funds. And some of it's going to have to come from the public sector. There's a lot of uncertainty and risk around some of these transition pathways and the public sector has a role in uh, you know man- managing those risks and 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 crowding in private investment and let's not overlook the the consumer uh, which uh, oft- often gets forgotten in policy conversations you know we, we map out uh, uh, a case for two trillion dollars of investment and spending over 30 years that's manageable economically although uh, we, we need clear plans to make it effective uh, but even that uh, amount of capital, even with the technologies that we assume are going to scale, there's still going to be a gap to to get to net zero by 2050. And the gap, uh, among other things, is going to require behavioral change. It's going to require all of us in different ways to behave differently. And that's in a way what makes economics interesting because nothing is static. We're all behaving differently than we did in uh, 1990. So you know, let's not assume that we're behaving in 2050 the way we are today, given how technology uh, affects each of our lives. What do you say, though, to the criticism that, to your point about the consumer getting on board with addressing climate change, that the consumer's consumption habits are such a small part of the actual problem and that only a handful of very large industries and countries that are not Canada are largely responsible for this. And if they just did their fair share, we'd all be fine. There's a lot of moral risk, if not moral hazard, in the global climate debate. And if countries, sectors, or individuals opt out, believing, maybe for good reason, that you know it's someone else's problem to do, then we're not going to get there. I often think of that line you hear in on voting day, or voting days now, plural, in elections, that why should I vote? What does, what, what does one vote matter? 
Well, if millions of people have the same conclusion, then you will lose democracy. And it's the same with climate. We all have a role to play. It's going to be challenging, but there's also, as we lay out in the report, far more opportunities than, than risks or threats here for the, the entire Canadian economy. So let's seize this as an opportunity. Let's seize it as an investment uh, opportunity for the country that can, can channel the excess savings that uh, we see in households or at the corporate level into productive assets uh, that, that, that generate wealth, growth, jobs for another, another quarter century. And if we take that approach and others are sleepier, then we'll uh, seize an even greater advantage. This is a remarkably in-depth report. And, and at the end of it, I, I started to wonder, you know, did Dr. Seuss's Lorax have it right? Can we really rely on the trees, as the report suggests, to do some of this heavy lifting? <laughs> That's a beautiful uh, r- reference, Michael. And, I, and I, I, I'm failing to think of a, a, of a counterpoint to match you with, um, despite all the, the Zeusian uh, <laughs> tales I've enjoyed over the years. Um, no, no, hang on. You've got it in you. I know. I, I, I can tell. Hang on, let me find some music. Oh, the places you'll go on your way home from Glasgow. No heating oil, you say? Why, we have wind in our turbines and sun on our panels. Just turn down the heat and put on more flannels. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. All right, let's get back to the business at hand. Uh, Your report does state that planting trees will, in fact, play a big role in addressing climate change. Yeah, the trees are important, but let's not get distracted by the trees. Let's ensure, okay, we'll see the forest uh, for the trees. Trees are an important element of a climate strategy, but insufficient for absorbing carbon. And I stress that because it's very easy to be tempted by the broad opportunities of offsets which essentially allow us to say, hey, we can continue business as usual and let's just plant more trees. Um, That's not going to work. It doesn't work actually mathematically. uh, It does not work climatologically. uh, And it's probably not going to work in terms of Canada's positioning in the world. So important, but but insufficient. Fortunately, we we have a kind of portfolio of options well beyond offsets of, of abatement technologies. Uh, as they're called, that allow us to capture uh, the carbon or gas emissions at source and put them back in the ground or keep them in the ground. Um, And this is, of of course, important for the oil sands, but it's it's important for all sorts of heavy industries. It's important for food production and agriculture. Uh, So these are technology opportunities that Canada, we we, we see companies across uh, across the country leading the way in this, but they've got to scale and be true global leaders uh, in this, which is all the more reason, Michael, back to your question about, you know, why should we do this if, uh, if others aren't? Well, if we get these companies really scaling, they're actually going to be helping us, but also then selling their services and technologies to those countries that may be a little uh, uh, step or two behind us. You have written that net zero is already feasible in some sectors like transportation, electricity, buildings, agriculture, with extensive abatement. But what does that really look like? Because uh, capturing greenhouse gas emissions in those various industries is very unique to those industries. So how do we scale whatever technologies each of them already have? Is, Is this a reliance on public policy or do we turn it over to the private sector? 
It's got to be both. One of the points we stress in the report is we need more blended finance and we need more blended policy. So on the finance side and carbon capture specifically, it's going to cost tens of billions of dollars. And I should not use the word cost because it's tens of billions of dollars of investment that's going to generate uh, significant growth for the country, including exports. Uh, that's going to require public money, especially at the front end of the risk curve. Uh, we are at the riskier stage of a new, a newish technology. Uh, therefore, there's going to uh, you know you know be testing and learning, but we don't have time to leave that in the lab. Uh, we've got to scale it as it uh, as it develops, and use private capital that comes tends to be uh, behind the public uh, capital to finance that scaling. And thirdly, we need to see an enormous opportunity here for indigenous capital. So we have public capital, private capital, and indigenous capital, which is growing significantly, fortunately, uh, and is looking for these sorts of opportunities. And it's not just the money. There, there is a need for, for knowledge and leadership and uh, participation as well as ownership in, in, in this. And I think everyone's keen to see that, uh, see that uh, going. Then there's the, so that's blended finance. Uh, and, and we need new structures for this, Michael, because it may be different for the oil sands than it is for uh, heavy industry than it is for, 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 for agriculture. Same with blended policy. This is going to require federal, provincial, and local uh, policy alignment. If you're going to you know, build a contraption or a carbon pipeline uh, in different parts of the country, these are 10 to 25-year projects. And we're hearing from investors who are looking at opportunities around the world. They need a degree of certainty that policies are going to remain. Of course, policies evolve. Uh, no one's looking for fixed policies, but that there is a certain consistency to policy, not just over time, but between jurisdictions, federal, pro provincial, local, so that if I'm building something and it's going to cost billions of dollars, um, I know with some certainty that over 10 to 25 years, my assumptions uh, are going to be consistent. Uh, that's going to attract the $2 trillion that we need uh, across, uh, across the country and across a 30-year time span. And we'll continue to stress that because policymakers are often looking at the short term, you know, what's going to succeed in the, uh, in the next year or the next election. We need to be much clearer and have conviction around the policies we're going to need for the next uh, for the next quarter century, which ultimately means, and, and we've been making the case for this, we need to think of new platforms that depoliticize a lot of of, of this. We need to look at something like carbon capture, uh, and we've recommended having a national policy, uh, a national commitment to CCUS, not just federal, <laughs> uh, that that involves private sector, indigenous peoples, uh, provinces, uh, local actors to say, okay, like the things will change and there's room for debate, but generally we're all behind this and uh, we'll get the policies and regulations from that uh, and be able to depoliticize, uh, especially the investment side of it, uh, that is going to uh, be quite significant if we, uh, if we get this right over the next decade. So then if we're talking about $60 billion annually, as you say, that's not a cost, that's an investment. If we switch from talking public policy in the public sector to the private sector, private sector doesn't open its wallet unless it sees a return on investment. 
Do we have a sense as to what the return on investment is when we're talking about $60 billion a year? Well, I think it goes back to uh, what John was saying about regulatory certainty. Right now, um, you know, there might not be the regulatory policy in place for certain industries to find it economical to invest in abatement technologies. And so that's the complementary role um, of public policy in some cases, which is just to provide a more forward-looking view of where carbon prices or regulation are going, and, and that provides a certainty that allows in, um, private investment and private money to plan. Well, what of the oil patch? You know, for example, you predicted that if we could save, that we could save 92 million tons of greenhouse gas a year by spending almost 14 billion a year. Where is that investment needed? Well, let's start with the oil sands it, itself. And there's a, a, a serious and significant commitment from now the six largest producers in the oil sands to get to net zero and to use carbon capture uh, and storage technologies to do it. They've already got the technologies. Uh, they'll advance them, but they really need to scale them. This is going to require billions of dollars, and that should be both public and private money. There's a private gain there for the companies. I think they recognize that and are willing to, to invest in it. And there is a, a significant public gain to be had both from that emissions reduction, but also the economic opportunity that as we scale and demonstrate to the world, uh, in fact, we may be ahead of the world on this, that we know how to transition uh, one of the world's leading oil and gas sectors towards net zero. If that becomes a demonstration case, Canada suddenly becomes an energy producer like we've never been, uh, where we are really good at renewables. We're really good at a range of traditional conventional energies, but we're also world leading in oil and gas transition. Well, we continue to produce oil and gas, uh, but doing it in a way that leads to net or contributes to, uh, to net zero. That becomes an additional export opportunity of the technology, of the, uh, the, of the machinery uh, that we'll be building that we can, uh, we can uh, manufacture and export. Even beyond the, like, the global competitiveness opportunity, there's also an upside in meeting our own decarbonization goals. Two trillion dollars um, is our estimate, but you know, the cost of technology can fall as we've seen with electric batteries. It's not something we can necessarily rely on in you know, a lot of fields. So we haven't incorporated that into our investment or into our calculations rather, but that's um, you know, an opportunity as well in investing early and in a measured way in, in various, of, the, various uh, of these pathways as what we could see a fall in costs as well that uh, make it a little bit easier for us to um, reach net zero. I'd be interested in coming back to something, you know, John, that you had pointed out when we were talking about if, you know, the others aren't doing it, why should we type of thing. Outside of the oil patch, if you believe heavy industry can reduce GHG by 35 million tons through cooperation with the United States, why do we need our biggest trading partner on site? Is this just to ensure that we don't put ourselves at a competitive disadvantage by incurring costs that they don't? Partly that and partly because they are our biggest, best customer. And we're starting to see this play out uh, in the real economy, uh, in uh, aluminum uh, or aluminum, as uh, some listeners may, to, may prefer to uh, pronounce it, uh, in, in steel, in manufactured products, where consumers of those products, uh, building infrastructure or construction, are saying, wow, you're, you're telling me we can have uh, green aluminum or green steel. That's really interesting uh, to us. They're investors, 
let's say a pension fund that's trying to get to net zero, is going to say, well, we may not finance that office tower uh, if we don't know that um, that the steel and glass that goes into it, it has a uh, has a positive contribution to net zero. Uh, Canada suddenly becomes a more competitive exporter to the very big. Uh, and growing U.S. market for all the things we're good at producing. This is not uh, uh, new stuff for us, but the processes, uh, the way that we make this stuff, uh, is is changing and making us uh, making us more competitive, and also making us more competitive for investment. Uh, investors are saying, okay, if you if you're building a new uh, factory line or a new steel uh, operation uh, that has a clear, demonstrable, accountable net zero strategy. We'd actually like to get our money into that versus a brown uh, operation uh, somewhere somewhere else. You can make a steel mill green. Absolutely, and Canada is doing that in Sault Ste. Marie uh, already at, uh, at Algoma. So, getting the 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 input, the the energy, it takes a lot of heat, mm. uh, which requires a lot of energy to make steel. Same with uh, uh, with other products. Uh, the more we can decarbonize that, the closer. The steel mill gets to being green, and if the technology is right, it's also cheaper, which makes us more competitive. And listeners to this podcast know how important competitiveness is to uh, Canada's prosperity, uh, and our, our climate strategy needs to be seen as a critical part of a long-term competitiveness and growth strategy. Some listeners might be surprised to learn that buildings are the third largest source of GHG, but you call it net zero ready. Commercial buildings may be able to see that cost benefit analysis, but how do we convince four and a half million households to retrofit their homes to help pull 65 million tons of CO2 out of the equation? Yeah, Michael, I'm having flashbacks to really bad TV commercials that I uh, watched as a kid about, you know, t- wasting electricity turns people off. Jimmy Jewel. I remember Jimmy Jewel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're, we're aging ourselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a problem. This is a Canadian problem. We're guilty as charged. Um, we are energy uh, uh, misfits and abusers as a people. Um, and even, even though it's not in our economic interest, it's, it's just something we're not, uh, we're not good at. So we need to apply a number of uh, economic ideas uh, to that challenge. One is behavioral, it's nudging. Uh, maybe it's not Jimmy Jewell in the 2020s, but whatever is going to nudge people to uh, turn their lights off or uh, turn the temperature down a bit uh, is going to be uh, is going to be important. But we also need to continue to look at the technologies uh, that allow us to improve our homes, uh, uh, the, the building technology, but also the, the 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 monitoring and optimization technology that allow you to control, or better yet, with AI for a, a robot to control the energy inputs into your house or your building or cottage uh, so that you don't need to think about it. Uh, and that, in fact, takes a bit of the human behavior out of, uh, out of the economics, and sometimes, uh, sometimes that, uh, that is good. So there's, a, the, 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 there's various forms of nudging uh, that, uh, that, that need to take place and just encouraging people to think about the household budget and how they can, uh, how they can continue to save money by managing uh, the energy inputs more efficiently. And in some cases, those supports aren't even financial because in the building space, we know that a lot of technologies are economic. It's just, you know, those payback periods are very long term. 
for an individual homeowner and it engenders, you know, short-term disruption to, you know, tear open your walls or, or, you know, undergo a renovation and people don't necessarily want to do that. So as John said, part of it can be nudging. Part of it also could be more active policies that A, help, you know, for example, lower income or cash constrained households invest, you know, achieve the upfront investment in the technology um, with the payback coming later. And in other cases, just a more coordinated approach to encouraging these retrofits and renovations. A, bi- a big area challenge as well is, is institutional buildings, schools, colleges, universities, and hospitals, as well as government buildings, tend to be uh, energy bleeders. And one of the reasons is that many of those institutions and operations don't have capital budgets for, for these kinds of investments. So they need to just carve out money from uh, their annual budget to update the building uh, or, or the plant. And that's not going to be sufficient. So how do we help that sector or sectors uh, find the investment capital uh, that they need? There's all sorts of instruments for this, uh, but uh, the, 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 they're going to be need to be scaled and sped up because, uh, again, we don't have time as a, uh, as a luxury in any of this. It sounds like you're hinting as well at Industry 4.0 and the quantification of our entire world that IoT provides. We can put all these sensors in all these buildings and there aren't any students in that classroom at this time. Let's you know kill the heat to that room. Yeah, and smart buildings, as they're called, are pretty normal now in commercial real estate uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, companies see it in their bottom line, but investors want it. Uh, investors are uh, looking for real estate opportunities on the commercial side that uh, have certified kind of lead, uh, lead, lead certification. Uh, that becomes much more appealing to a whole range of institutional investors. And you know what? Employees are demanding it. Uh, it is harder to hire people uh, in this day and age into a building that is not certified as climate worthy. Uh, that's a good thing. That's uh, that's consumer demand in a, in, in a different space, nudging uh, the uh, the corporate side of the equation to take action and invest in uh, something that is is good for the climate, but also good for the bottom line. Yeah, back in the olden days, we called them um, sick building syndrome. Nobody wants to work in one of those buildings anymore. Uh, what though, Cynthia, of the 31 million tons of GHD that we can eliminate from agriculture? You know, the perception may be that it's all cow burps and farts. Oh, that's definitely a component of it. And there is an element in the sense that, you know, that we need fertilizers and we'll continue to raise ruminant animals that will still be dealing with those challenges. The, you know, the challenge in agriculture is you have both diffuse emissions as well as in some cases diffuse producers. And so abatement options are a bit more challenging. But, you know, as our report identified, there's areas um, that we can do something it includes, you know, rethinking the way we apply fertilizer to our crops or, you know, in some cases there are innovations in how we can manage livestock production or manure management that could, you know, trap or concentrate concentrate and trap those methane sources. And there's other aspects of agriculture that, you know, I guess you would say have more conventional um uh, potentially conventional transition pathways in, in terms of switching out fossil fuels. Some of those technologies aren't yet feasible. Um, for large-scale farm equipment, for example, but electrification could be a pathway as well. There's the challenge and there's opportunities for abatement, we know, but you know, we can also need to remember that there could be opportunities with nature-based solutions on farms and tradable carbon credits. And so 
we need a strategy to provide farmers with the technology that can facilitate that type of market and encourage uh, a net zero in the agricultural sector. So before I let you go, how does your report compare to the COP26 goals that Canada has announced it will work for? The COP26 goals are ambitious uh, and will be a stretch from current course, which is one of the reasons we keep saying Canada needs a new playbook to get at a lot of these things. We have a good policy framework as a country, um, one of the best in the world. Uh, we have some good strategies on transitioning to net zero, including a good overall strategy about net zero. But as business listeners know, you need to get down to a plan pretty quickly. And that's where we're at right now. Canada needs more than one plan. We will need multiple plans across sectors. Uh, this is on every sector that starts to better articulate what technologies are available, what kind of capital is needed, what is the blended policy. This is up to more than one jurisdiction that we're going to need over the next 25 years to get there. And then when that plan or those plans are articulated over to entrepreneurs, innovators in the private sector, as well as the world of capital to get behind this, uh, which should be you know, maybe the most exciting quarter century any of us have studied uh, in terms of innovation and economic advancement. Uh, but if we don't get on with the, the, the plan and getting the capital behind the right people and technologies, we're going to miss out on that, uh, on, on, on that time frame pretty, uh, pretty quickly. So we have great ambitions uh, and direction coming out of COP, but it's now time to get down to, uh, to the dirty details of, uh, of making this work across all economic sectors and critically finding more and more ways to get private capital and ingenuity to, uh, to lead the way. Yeah, well, you know, we need to be focusing on global cooperation as well. It's about having our own plan, but having a plan, you know, with some allies. And, and for Canada, that is clearly the United States. Part of it is related to reaching our own decarbonization goals. We know, for example, in heavy industry, that the carbon regulation means that um, the effective carbon price uh, for that industry is a lot lower than that, that, that which the consumer sees. And that's related to concerns over international competitiveness. And what happens if Canada has, you know, a higher uh, carbon um, restriction or, or higher environmental regulation versus major trading partners? So we know that the G7 uh, is looking at border carbon adjustments as a way to limit this carbon arbitrage and what that facilitates is you know a, a less concerns over these competitiveness uh, challenges with increasing um, environmental regulation and that allows um, governments to increase the demands on industry to contribute to more decarbonization efforts without having those negative competitiveness impacts for canada this is going to be very important we know the EU is moving ahead with a proposal that they've earmarked to start in 2026. The US and UK are looking at, at, at it. And for Canada, whatever the US does is very important because our heavy industry is very export dependent. Um, and as well, um, it's a very important sector in Canada. Our current um, you know, carbon pricing regime is pretty favorable relative to the states. And so that could insulate us from any negative impacts in the short term. but 
the thing with border carbon adjustments is they're so incredibly complex and in that we don't know exactly how it will, you know, sort out. There's a lot of subjectivity into implementing these mechanisms. So cooperation with our major trading partner is going to be important to ensure clarity for business. And so Canadian um, industry is not disadvantaged. John, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time and insight on our first podcast ever to reference Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Hopefully, Michael, not the last. John Stackhouse is the Senior Vice President at RBC, and Cynthia Leach is RBC's Senior Director of Thought Leadership. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, Ontario's Fall Economic Statement. Join us in person Monday, November 15th at the Toronto headquarters for the Honorable Peter Bethlen Falvey, the Minister of Finance for the province. On November 25th, reviewing the Innovation Superclusters Initiative, Success or Failure? A webinar with Dr. Catherine Baudry, the Professor of Economics of Innovation at Polytechnique Montréal, Daniel Herman from the Ontario Ministry of Colleges and Universities, and former Deputy Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, John Newbley. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.